Large Aperture Telescope Observing and Sketching with Howard Banich on episode 319 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky. And this podcast is for everyone who enjoys going out under the stars. So today we're joined by Howard Banich. Howard has been observing the night sky since 1966 and Subingham building telescopes when he was only 14. A longtime member of the Rose City Astronomers and frequent attendee of many star parties. And uh, for those of us who subscribe to Sky and Telescope magazine or Amateur Astronomy magazine back in the day, uh, we know Howard as a passionate writer, observer, and sketcher. In our correspondence, I found that Howard is like many of us, as he is always seeking out new targets and new ways of appreciating the night sky we all love. Uh, Welcome to the show this morning, Howard. Great to have you on. Thank you. Glad to be here. First, a little bit of a thank you. We appreciate you allowing us to use your sketch for the M51 show that we did with uh, Alistair Ling recently. It was uh, it was really great. Thank you so much for for sending. Oh, oh yeah, my pleasure. There's um, yeah, there's a story with that sketch that is is kind of a pretty big part of my amateur astronomy career. The long story short, in in 2009, about this time in 2009, this time of year. I was at a uh, RCA star party that's in central Oregon, and the night was partly cloudy, but the sky in between the clouds was spectacularly clear and transparent. And I had a view of M51 that, with my 28-inch telescope, which I have never equaled since, it was just absolutely astounding. And... I was thinking there's no way I could possibly sketch all it at the time. I just so, soaked in the uh, the view. And then the, the next day, I'm thinking, well, why couldn't I sketch that? I mean, I can sketch. Um, you know, I've been sketching since I was a teenager, but I just never took the time to sketch something so detailed. So I said, okay, I'm going to sketch M51, and I'm going to see everything I can possibly see. And then a few months later, I started that sketch of the Golden State Star Party, which I think was in June. Yeah, it was June. Yeah, it's late June. And then for the next four years, just taking the very best nights where I could see something new, I added to my sketch. And that's what you, I have now. I've added a little bit here and there, uh, but I think I've pretty much seen everything I can see. Um, actually, I have seen everything I can see the 28 inch because I don't have that scope anymore. Which is another story. <laughs> the, <laughs> so the anyway, fine print. <laughs> yeah, the fine print. And so, um, um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of the sketch. And then I'm, I'm leaping through Sky and Telescope one day, and you know they have the the, the image gallery in the back, and then they, and they have the little fine print somewhere in there that says, you know, if you have an image that you would like us to consider please send it in. I'm looking at my sketch and I'm thinking, well, that's an image. That's just a drawn image. And so I sent it in and, you know, I, I had no hopes that they would actually publish it, but um, months go by, months go by. I forget about it. And, you know, if I do remember it, it's like, oh, well, they're just not going to use it. And then one day I get an email from Tony Flanders at Sky and Telescope saying, oh, we really like your sketch. Would you consider writing an observing article about it? I was like, what? Me? You want me to write an article for Sky and Telescope? 
they said, no, no guarantees. We'll publish it. But, you know, we'd really appreciate it if you'd send us, uh, you know, something that we could look at. Well, I was, yeah. And so I did. And that was my first article. I think it was in the June 2011 issue. And so that's how I got started writing for Sky and Telescope was because of that one night in, in June, no, in March 2009, when I had that awesome view of M51. Yeah, that, that sketch is incredible. The first time uh, I saw that, uh, it was hard to believe that that was a sketch. But, you know, after you explaining here, you know, four years of additions and things, uh, what a great, uh, you know, method and the result speaks for itself. It's, it's just yeah. truly incredible. Well, thank you. And, that, that, and I stayed with that technique. So all the sketches you see with my articles that are published were, were made that way over at least several nights, maybe not over four years, but um, <laughs> I think that's, that's a record so far. No, actually not. M33 is, is the record so far, but um, that's another story. So there's uh, it, it's, I, I, I think of it as high resolution sketching mm -hmm. because, you know, kind of like astrophotographers, um, you know, there's, you know, you're, you're taking a, a lot of um, images, a lot of uh, exposures, and you're keeping the best ones that you stack. And so I'm just keeping the best observations and adding it to the sketch. It's kind of the same idea. Yeah, yeah. There, there are a lot of parallels there, other than the technology being used. I guess. <laughs> yes, yeah, old-fashioned old technology for sure. And and mine is very inexpensive. Paper <laughs> yeah. and a pencil <laughs> and an eraser. <laughs> yeah, that's a little cheaper than an astrophotography yeah. setup. Yeah, for sure. Oh yeah, it is. It really, <laughs> um, yeah, but you know, the I just enjoy it. I get so much satisfaction. You know, being at the eyepiece. And, and marking down what I'm seeing. Um, I have sketches that go back to 1974. And wow. you know, I look at those and, and, I, and, and that night just comes back to me. And mm -hmm. it's just, mm -hmm. uh, it's just, uh, it's my, it's my, my notes and sketches are, are my greatest physical treasure. Wow. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. Um, Question two about your sketching process is, is the mid, like, uh, after you're done at the eyepiece and say it's the next day, are you, um, kind of refining the sketch during the day or is it a hundred percent at the telescope? Oh, you know, it's, there's, there's a lot of refining the next day. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, at the eyepiece at night, you know, I got my red, red light, just a little red light on there. Very, very dim. And, um, I'm looking at my sketch and I'm thinking, this is a masterpiece. I won't need to do anything to this. <laughs> but I also know that, you know, in the light of day, I'll see pencil lines all over the place, fingerprint smudges. My stars will be little lines instead of being round dots. And, and yeah, so I clean that up. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, the, the whole idea for, for the sketch is to, is to, have a visual record of what I actually saw. So I clean it up to be truer to what I saw. And so that's why I do it the, the very next morning because you know, my visual memory starts to fade mm -hmm. for, for fine details after more than a day. 
Mm-hmm. Well, last night I was observing double stars uh, exclusively in the backyard. And the one thing I forgot to bring out with me was my pen and pad of paper to record my observations. And I was lazy and thought, I'm just observing doubles. I'll remember what I saw. And when I went inside after observing and was typing out my, my observation notes to the point of memory, not being a great record, I was like, well, was that pair, the colorful pair, or was that the, you know, close pair? Yeah. And, oh, yeah. and you, you know, it doesn't take long to start missing some of that detail in your memory. Mm-hmm. So lesson learned. I won't be lazy next time. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of memory, there was, there was something that I happened upon, uh, Howard, when, when you and I were communicating, um, leading up to the show and I'd gone back into our emails because I was making sure that I put in, um, certain things that, that we'd been chatting about. And I found an email exchange between us back in 2011 on M51, which really surprised <laughs> me because I'd completely forgotten about this. And back in 2011, Shane and I had done our first podcast and one of our first episodes was on M51. And I ended up sending you the show notes from uh, one of our first podcasts. Uh, you know, I... I'll confess, I don't remember that. But if I had my old email uh, emails saved, which from that time, which are long gone now, I, I'm sure I saved a copy of that as well. You know, amateur astronomy is a uh, is a pretty compact group of human beings on this planet, so it's, yeah. it's we're bound to run into each other. That's <laughs> so true. It, it, what, what I've found interesting, particularly, I don't know, maybe Chris, within the last six months or so, uh, you know, we've had a number of different guests on the, the podcast to chat, and it's just a web of connection. <laughs> and oh, and yeah. it just one guest leads to two more, it seems. Mm-hmm. Uh, so certainly the community is very well interconnected. Oh, yeah. I, I have a, a short list of people I'd recommend you guys to interview, too. We, are, we already did one. We had dailies. I know. Yeah, daily. Yeah, I got more. <laughs> anyway, that's, yeah, we could do that sometime later. But anyway, yeah, and it's really like, okay, like tomorrow afternoon, I'm giving a presentation to an astronomy club uh, in Mexico City. Wow. They, they, the guy who runs it is, um, he saw my, my latest article in Sky and Telescope. And I think it was like last Tuesday. He said, oh, could you give us a presentation uh, this coming Monday? He's like, oh, okay. I said, oh, sure, I'd be happy to. What about, he says, anything about galaxies? Anything about galaxies? Okay, so I have, so I've been coming up with a, uh, a presentation and made good progress on it. But, you know, it's like, okay, this, this is random person from Mexico City. You know, this is going to be great. I mean, he sent a picture of their club and it was like 30 people. And 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 I can't wait to, you know, to, to get on Zoom and, and to see everybody and to talk to them. But he's going to have to translate what I say. So that's going to be an interesting experience. But just this, this web of interconnection. I have a good friend. He lives in Argentina and um, wonderful, very talented amateur astronomer. And I would, there would be no way that we would have connected without amateur astronomy. I mean, it just wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. So, so it's really a, it's a great community, and they're almost without exception, the people I meet are just wonderful. 
So how yeah. old were you when you first really got interested in astronomy and, and what kindled that, that spark, Howard? Well, the, the, the event that kindled it was my first view of Saturn when I was 11. That was in 1966. Now, you, you may, you, you guys probably weren't around. You look much, much younger than I do. Um, you know, that was the height of the, the, the space race, right? And so, and, and my dad worked for United Airlines as a meteorologist. And he subscribed to a magazine called Aviation Week and Space Technology. And so it followed all the inside, behind the scenes, goings on with the space program. So I was just absolutely fascinated with going to the moon and Mars and who knows where else. And of course, that's when Star Trek came out in mm-hmm. 1966. So I was all about outer space. And so my dad bought this, I don't know, it's about a foot long, it's 30 centimeters, the spotting scope. And it was it was the shakiest, wobbliest. <laughs> I think it had a... Um, you know, maybe a 25 millimeter lens on it. And it was just this really cheap thing. But we had this deck and this is in, we lived in Colorado and we had this beautiful view of the Rocky Mountains. And one evening we had a, um, a barbecue and it's getting late and the sky's getting dark and there's this single bright star hanging just over the Rocky Mountains. And so I said, oh, I'm going to point this little telescope at that. Look at that star. Well, it turned out to be Saturn. And it was the teeniest little image you could possibly imagine, but I could see the rings. I was just electrified. And from that moment, I transformed from being a kid interested in everything about space to being an amateur astronomer. It was just, just one of those moments that was a real turning point for me. Yeah, my my first uh, view through a telescope was also Saturn. And up until that point, I had an interest in space. And at that point, I had a very keen interest in observing, uh, you know, and in talking to a lot of other folks, uh, Saturn is the one that seems yeah. to really, you know, be that that first memory. Yeah, that's, 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 that's what I hear from uh, a majority of people. Yeah. So Howard, um, you mentioned the spotting scope. Uh, what was what was the transition after that to your first proper astronomical <laughs> telescope? <laughs> well, yeah, I've always thought I've led this boring life, but it turns out I have some interesting stories. <laughs> um, not not long after that um, that first view of, of Saturn with that really terrible spotting scope, our house was robbed, oh. and and one of the things that was taken was that terrible telescope. <laughs> which I didn't miss. Um, but, um, you know, part of the insurance settlement my, my parents got, uh, my dad came home with a three-inch Tasco F-15 refractor. Nice. And I was like, whoa, this is, this is a whole different league now. I got a real telescope. And so I, I, I used the heck out of that thing. But, you know, the limitations of the three, and it wasn't that, I mean, the, you know, F-15, it still had an enormous amount of chromatic aberration, mm-hmm. you know, so, so the lens wasn't, wasn't very good. I mean, it's very possible to make a crappy F-15 telescope, and, <laughs> and, and Tasco succeeded in that. But anyway, um, 
so I wanted I wanted a better view, and um, we were getting Edmund scientific catalogs in the mail every so often, and, and in the back they had all the stuff for for amateur telescopes and telescope making. And so I, I would read that and read that because I couldn't. There's no way my parents would spring to buy a, a telescope like they were selling. But a, a, a kit for making an eight inch mirror cost thirty five dollars. Hmm. And I could I managed that. And so I thought, OK, I can I convinced myself I could do it. And so I ordered the kit and um, I think it took me about a year to get a, a to get the mirror to where it was usable. It wasn't great, but it was usable. And then that that's when I really got into observing the deep sky. So that was like 1969, like 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 you said, Chris, in the, at the in, in the intro. And that was the summer of the moon landing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kid of the space age. Yeah, super exciting time. Yeah. Do you recall, you know, in your in your articles, you, you write and sketch through uh, the 28-inch mostly, and we'll get into that soon. But do you recall your view through your first view through a really large instrument and maybe what that telescope was and the impression that made on you? Well, it depends on what we consider a really large telescope. You know, so I went from a three-inch to an eight-inch, and that that jump was like, oh gosh, eight inches in 1969. That was a big telescope for an amateur. I made a 12 and a half inch F8, F7.8. Um, a few years later, I started making it. I didn't finish it until I was out of college. So in 1981, I finally put it all together. And that felt like a big scope. And then few, 10 years after that, I, I bought a 20 inch obsession. And I think pretty much everybody would agree that's a big scope. Um, <laughs> So I would say, though, the 20-inch the, the was my first real experience with a, with, a, with a big scope that I owned. I had looked through a 24-inch at the, at the first Oregon Star Party I went to in 1991. And it was at the 2,200-meter um, altitude on a beautiful desert mountain in southeastern Oregon, Steens Mountain. It's as dark as it can get there. No light pollution at all. Mortal one. Um, and seeing what the Veil Nebula looked like was just a revelation to me. It's like, holy cow, you can see it this well with a scope this size. And that that just, that's one, one of those sites that I'll never forget. Speaking of sites, I'm curious, uh, and I, I read some of your biographical details. I, I sort of know the answer to this, but what has been the largest telescope you've observed through so far, and uh, what did you look look at through that instrument? Well, <laughs> well, the largest telescope I've been fortunate enough to look through is actually the 90-inch Bach telescope at Kid Peak. <laughs> um, a friend of mine got together... A group of 10 people. And so we all had to pitch in $300. This is in 2000, I think 2011, 2012. And because it isn't the sort of thing that they do. This guy happened to know the observatory director. And so we got a, a special deal. So for 300 bucks, it's like, yeah, I'm in. 
we looked at a variety of things that that one night. It was one of those experiences that was just like off the charts for amateur astronomy. It was, it was way off the charts. Okay, first of all, the 90-inch Bach. Okay, this is it's like what 40 years old now. And this thing is as big as a school bus. And so when you're looking through the eyepiece, you're underneath this thing. And the, the, the mass of it is just kind of like, gosh, I hope the mount doesn't decide to fail <laughs> right now while I'm looking through it. But it's just, it's just this enormous telescope. Oh my gosh. And um, two observations really stand out. The first, which is something that probably never to be repeated. Um, a friend of mine, Dan Gray, he, um, he's the guy who starts and, and owns um, Sidereal Technology. Their, string uh, telescopes. I think yeah. He yeah, string telescopes too. That's right. Um, he put together a, he called it a chopper. It's basically a rotating shutter. And he programmed it to rotate just slightly slower than the rate that the pulsar in the center of the Crab Nebula pulses. And the idea was that if, if, if you could get the spin rate just right, you know, when we're looking at that in that big telescope, we might be able to see the pulsar, you know, brighten and fade, brighten and fade as, as the shutter is going around. And that's exactly what it did. Wow. It, it, it was, it was, <laughs> we're seeing a pulse, a pulsar, a neutron star <laughs> in action. Oh my gosh. Who, you know, I, I was the first to look out of the 10 of us, and I was going nuts. And and Dan was just, just standing right next to me. He had to push me off the chair. <laughs> I got to see this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, everyone was going nuts. I mean, it was it was incredible. Wow. And then the, the, the other observation, at least for me, that was, uh, you know, I think about all the time was of M51. Our old friend M51. Yeah, you've, you know, if you take the photo of M51 taken by the Hubble and you remove the color, that's what we saw. I, I remember thinking that I'm looking at this and I said, Lord Ross, eat your heart out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this, this is the view of M51 everyone wants to see. Oh my gosh. Yeah, well, 90 no inches of aperture on top of a, 8,000 foot mountain is the way to go. Yeah, you, you kind of have me wanting that now. I'm yeah, not sure how attainable it is, but. <laughs> oh, oh, I came I came home thinking, you know, and I got to go back and look through my dinky little 28 inch now. <laughs> how, how's that going to work? <laughs> what was the field of view like on that? Was it a pretty small field of view? Mm -hmm. or The, um, what is it, NGC 5194, the main disc of the Whirlpool? Okay, yeah. all right. The, the the big part. Oh, the big part. There. The big part. The spiral arms that just barely fit in the field of view, and we brought along thirty one Nadler for that view, and it just barely that just barely fit in. Wow, mm -hmm. it's very small. Right, they could put a put an optical eyepiece on that. Typically, telescopes of that size uh, aren't, aren't configured to take an optical eyepiece. No, th this one evidently was made long enough ago mm -hmm. to where 
they had a visual back. And after we observed, and we're getting kind of a little tour around inside the observatory, um, in the light of day, we somebody opened up a, uh, a cabinet, and there's all these eyepieces made especially for. I mean, they're gargantuan eyepieces. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. But none of them would have given us the field of view that the 31 Nagler had. Yeah. What else did you look at? You looked at the Crab Nebula and Pulsar, M51. Oh, a bunch of things. Um, oh, let, let me think back. Um, we looked at the Ring Nebula. There's a lots, of, lots of stars you can see through the Ring Nebula at that aperture. I was surprised, though, we didn't see any color. Yeah, I, I've seen color, some very nice color in my 28-inch on a really good night. So I was surprised we didn't see any color. We, we looked at the uh, Sombrero which was wonderful. We looked at, uh, oh gosh, we looked at the, um, the center of the Hercules galaxy cluster. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, man. So, so the small, you know, that, that cluster of galaxies has a higher proportion of spirals in it than most, as it turns out. And, and there they were. Okay, there's all these little spirals. <laughs> you know, it's not like, oh, I can just barely make it out. No, it's like, okay, that's a spiral galaxy. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That must truly have been a session where you just did not want the sun to rise. <laughs> no, no, not at all. And all during this, the, the, you know, the telescope's in a big dome, of course. All during this, the wind outside is howling. So as, as the wind is whipping around the outside of the dome, you know, and then the, and the dome slit, around the slit, it was making this, this sound like we're in, we're in a ship at sea during a big storm. <laughs> and, I mean, this gave it a whole dramatic feel to it as well. Yeah, it was, it was an experience I'm so glad I was there to, to have. Yeah, it, it was a wonderful thing, and it made me feel... So glad to be alive. That's that's definitely for sure. How long was the session? Was it like an all night session or a couple? It was of all hours? night. It was all oh, night. Yeah, yeah. We put together a list. I mean, we looked at a bunch of stuff. I'm just not remembering. And so I, I put this list together and I put the RA and deck for all these objects. And we gave it to the telescope operator who's back in the little control center behind the window. The list was ordered by Wright Ascension. So. You know, as the night went on, we, we, things would be appropriately placed in the sky. And that telescope, I mean, it just bang. The go-tos are just bang on. Every object is right in the center. It's like, wow, <laughs> that's impressive mm -hmm. for, for a bus-sized telescope. So you mentioned your 28-inch scope uh, a few times. That's the scope that you wrote many articles using where you, you did some sketches and then they were, were published in and amongst uh, your written words in, in Sky and Telescope and some other publications. Can you talk a little bit about the, the background design and, and the first views through that instrument and maybe uh, sort of transition into where you are now with that? Yeah. Well, that, that 28 inch came about through um, my friendship with Tom Osipowski. Of equatorial platforms. And because uh, I, when I first got my 20 inch, I contacted him about making, uh, if I could buy the drive components of his equatorial platforms so I could make my own platform. They said, oh, sure. So we got to be friends during it all, and years go by. And, and he said, hey, you know, there's this guy down in Southern California, Steve Kennedy, who's just 
getting ready to start making some 28 inch mirrors. And this is in 2003. And so uh, I'm thinking, well, I that sounds great, but I don't have the money to go buy a 28 inch mirror, no matter how who, who makes it. But I had a chance to look through Tom's 24 inch telescope with a mirror made by Steve. And it was outstanding. It's like, wow, this is way better than my 20 inch. And I thought the 20 inch was really good. A few months go by and unexpectedly, I get a, a bonus at work that would just about cover the cost of that 20 inch mirror. So I talked to my wife and, uh, and Judy, you know, as, as she always has, says, honey, you go for it. Um, and so I did. And I, I built that at exactly the right time. As it turns out, just as I was finishing my design on the computer, Dan Gray, Dan calls me up and says, hey, Howard, would you like to, could I talk you into being a beta tester for my new um, Altaz drive? You know, he didn't even have a name for his company yet, Sidereal Technology. And so he said, I'll, I'll, I have, I've made two units and I have, because Dan had a 28 inch, which is a string telescope, which he still has. And it worked great on his. And I said, okay, I'm going to redesign my 28 inch so I can use his drive on, on my scope. And so that's the way I built it. So to do that, I, I took elements of Tom Ozapowski's FICA Eyes telescopes and elements of Dan's 28 inch string telescope and mushed those together to come up with my design. And so my, uh, my, my first use of that scope was at the um, 2004, this is a Shingletown star party. This is the star party in Northern California that preceded Golden State. And this was on, this was held on this crazy place. It was an abandoned airstrip, private airstrip. That, and you would think, oh, that'd be on a really nice level piece of ground. Oh no, I mean, this airstrip <laughs> went uphill. <laughs> so there was no flat spots. Uh, everything was was at a pretty good angle. But anyway, um, yeah, using it there for the, for the first time, it's like, wow, okay, this is a big upgrade from the twenty in terms of the the the, the detail and the brightness of, of objects. So from from that point on, I was gung ho all the way. So what kind of design? Did that telescope have, and are you carrying that forward to a new instrument? The design, if you if if you go to equatorialplatforms.com, it's Tom Osipowski's uh, website, and look at a Spica Eyes telescope design. And my 28-inch was almost exactly like that. Because you know, one of the things that has been really great with Tom is that over the years, we've been exchanging ideas back and forth. He, he, he makes something like, oh, that's cool. So that I, could, I could take that idea and give it a little twist so he could do this with it. And then he would see that and he'd go back and forth and back and forth. And so what, what ended up happening was that you know, his first generation of Spica Eyes was built to be on his equatorial platforms. Then I built my telescope, which is basically exactly like the optical tube assembly of, of the spike eyes, but I have a variation of Dan Gray's alt as base. But 
because it's made out of rectangular aluminum tubing for the rocker i left that that tubing open so i could put two by fours in there and 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 make a wheelbarrow but so i could just slide them in so i wouldn't have to screw things onto the side like like you see a lot of telescopes and so um at that first shingletown star party where i had it out Steve Kennedy was there and he saw that and he says, Hey, Tom, make me a telescope just like Howard's. <laughs> so, so then Tom said, Hmm, okay, well, I can do that, but I can do these other things. And so that's, that's what he makes. And that's a, the closest analog to, to my telescope. Or you can go to my webpage, um, you know, just, just Google Howard Banish and I'm sure you'll come up with it. But um, you can see all the gory detail. It always has had the uh, Dan's sidereal technology drive on it. I have the, the second unit that he made. You know, he has the first one in his 28 and I have the second one. And since 2004, the thing has worked flawlessly. It's, it's really pretty impressive. Cause he, I mean, he, he, he hand soldered all the connections in there. This isn't like the mass produced ones he has now. So you've mi you've migrated though from that twenty eight inch to yes. uh, and the twenty eight inch was an f four is that correct f four yes f four and I had gradually tuned that through the years it was always you know if you make a telescope it's never really finished kind of like a that's what people say about art but it's the same thing it's true about making your own telescope and I was so happy with it it, it was just I. I when I was a kid, I couldn't imagine ever having something that was that capable. And then in October of 2021, I was observing with Mel Bartels, you know, an amateur that a lot of people recognize his name, um, master ATM, master amateur optician. Oh, my gosh. He's a guy you need to have on your show. He's he's. He is exceptional person. Anyway, he had just finished making two identical 30-inch F2.7 meniscus mirrors that are five-eighths of an inch thick all the way through. Wow. And he started this project off by getting the 30-inch blanks that were three-quarters inch thick from a place that sells glass for tabletops. <laughs> and, and we have a mutual friend who lives on the Oregon coast who built a kiln that was big enough to accept 60 inch blanks, if you can imagine, okay. you know, <laughs> six feet, almost six feet. Um, well, I guess that's five feet, really. Anyway, he, he built a slumping mold. He took it to, there are David Davis is the guy's name. And the, he slumped these. He, actually, he slumped um, two 30 inches and two 42 inch blanks hmm. at the same, you know, in the same kiln and, and the same, the same run. And I can't, I can't give Mel's story justice. You I mean, you, need, you really need to talk to him um, about the, the intricacies of everything that went on. But basically, the end result was. He built uh, a beautiful, I mean, I mean, beautiful 30-inch telescope for one of his 30-inch mirrors. 
And I was at his place and we were observing. He lives in, in, in a place called Sisters, Oregon, which is on the east side of the Cascades. So he's in the high desert and he has a lot more clear skies there. And I went to his place and we were observing one night. And, and then the next day we're sitting around and, and I said, hey, Mel, what are you going to do with your extra 30-inch mirror? Yeah, I'm not thinking at all about buying it from you. And I said, well, I'll probably sell it. Like, oh, man, it's kind of what I thought. And um, they go, hmm, uh, tell me again how much that thing weighs. It says it weighs 38 pounds. 30-inch mirror that weighs 38 pounds. That's incredible. My, my 28-inch mirror, which was two inches thick, weighed 92 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and because I'm one of those crazy people who like to silver my mirror, because I'll tell you, silvering is the way to go if you want to see star colors and you want to get the maximum reflectivity. A brand new silver coating, you can't beat it. But anyway, I'm not getting any younger. Okay, I'm going to, I'm 67. And, and lifting a 92-pound chunk of glass in and out of my telescope to silver it is something I can, I can still do barely, but I didn't want to because at some point I just knew my back would go out and I'd drop it and it would be a disaster. So I'm thinking to myself, well, Mel, I'll buy that mirror from you, but I need to talk to Judy first. And uh, <laughs> so I get, I go home. I'm talking to talking to her about it, and she says, "Just I'm like she always does, honey. You go for it. That is a great idea. <laughs> uh, she she's the ideal woman. I I'm so lucky, and I'm not being facetious in any way at all." <laughs> she said, "That is great. She said, Every time you you've taken that mirror out of there, I worry that you're gonna fill your back." And so Mel and I came to a a price, and I knew. From, or I was pretty sure anyway, that when I made the 28 inch, that there is enough room in there for a 30 inch mirror. I didn't make it because I thought someday I'm going to get a 30 inch mirror because 28 to 30, you know, that's, that's not worth the effort. There, there's, there's the itty bittiest bit of, of, of light gain and resolution gain that are most nights you just can't see. So, you know, for, for, you know, two inches of aperture, it's not worth doing for the light weight. It's totally worth doing. I, I was just going to say that for, yeah, I sold the 28-inch mirror, and I sold the cage and the diagonal mirror, diagonal holder and spider and all that to a guy who's, who's uh, in, in Houston, Texas. And But I kept, you know, the mirror box, the, the rocker, uh, you know, the ground board, everything with the drive. And even it turns out my my mirror cell, by some cosmic coincidence, the the support points were exactly the same. Well, within a tenth of an inch, anyway, of what Mel had calculated using the the, the online program Plop, that would be perfect for these thirty inch meniscus mirrors. So I didn't even need to make a new cell. <laughs> it was meant to be. It was meant to be. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so all, all of last winter and spring, I worked on this and uh, got it going in, uh, yeah, last May, almost a year ago. And it's been, uh, <laughs> yeah, like, like any telescope project, there's 
it's never done the first time it's put together. And so I've been refining it and getting used to, to using a meniscus mirror because it's different than a really thick mirror. As, as these mirrors cool, their optical shape can change quite dramatically. And, and with the use of a you know, fan in the back, um, very quickly, that, that mirror can be adjusted to perfection. You know, imagine a, a nearly perfect 30-inch F2.7 30-inch telescope on a really good night. And holy smoly. And being able to tune it. Yeah, because one of the things that, that with my 20-inch mirror, I mean, I had mirror, I had fans on it. But yeah, because it was so such a thick chunk of glass that very rarely would the, the, the mirror ever reach equilibrium. The meniscus mirror can reach equilibrium really quickly. And so that's that's been a really wonderful uh, side benefit. Plus it has, with my lowest power eyepiece, I can get 1.1 degree true field, which for again, for a 30 inch telescope, that's pretty remarkable. Oh yeah, that, that sounds can, incredible. Oh yeah, it can fit the, the double cluster into that field of view very nicely. Wow. It's, it's oh boy, yeah. So I'm I'm just yeah I'm just over the over, over the moon on this. It's uh, it, it's been a uh, as a tough like most things, yeah. You know, this has been totally unexpected. Yeah, you know, if I had tried to plan any of this out, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Um, that's not the way life goes. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things that fascinates me, Howard, about amateur telescope makers, is the just the reminder uh, or sorry, the removal of all constraints and the creativity and just like, like building something that, um, you know, not only like is incredibly functional, but just like a, a 30 inch F 2.7 just blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, me too. And, and a 30, <laughs> what, what did you say? A 38 or 39 pound mirror is just like, wow. Yeah. Oh yeah. It. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's like a big contact lens. <laughs> you know another funny thing about you know going from the 28 to the 30 because this is so much shorter just two and a half feet shorter i had an eight foot tall orchard ladder to use with the 28 inch so i was thinking well i'll just go buy a shorter ladder well you know the aluminum orchard ladder pretty pricey these days and they don't make them short enough for what i wanted so i ended up cutting two and a half feet off the bottom of my eight foot ladder. So, <laughs> so it doesn't, you know, so it's not taller than my telescope now. Well, I guess, uh, you'll, you'll give up apples for aperture. <laughs> oh, heck yeah. No, I, besides it's easier to move around and fits in the van better and all that. So it's, it's all good. Yeah, that's great. I have a question about uh, the ladder. So you're a astronomical sketcher as well, Howard. And with your sketching through these large instruments, how do you sketch on a ladder? Like, do you have to take anything else into account? I've never sketched on a ladder before. Usually I prefer to sit. So the idea of sketching on a ladder is, uh, yeah. would be a new experience for me. Yeah. Well, sitting is, is, is the best way to go. You know, when I, when I sketch the, uh, the Triffid Nebula and the, and the Lagoon Nebula, you know, sitting on my observing chair was, oh, this is the way to go. And this is, <laughs> this is, this is the peak experience for sketching. But when I'm on the ladder, yeah, it is different. But you know, for, for me, I've always preferred using the ladder because I can lean against it. And 
the difference between leaning against something and standing unsupported. I have a hard time keeping my eye steady enough at the eyepiece to where I can comfortably enjoy the view. So if I can lean on the ladder, okay, so that's 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 one, one plus for me. But okay, so I'm on the ladder, I'm looking at the eyepiece, I'm comfortable and I've got a nice comfortable lean going. And yeah, I'm looking in the eyepiece, okay, I, I see what I see and I, yeah, I make some mental notes and then I start my sketch and I, I have my uh, red light, I'm holding it in my teeth. And as I transfer my eye to looking at my notebook, the sketch, I close my observing eye and I start my sketch looking at it just with my other eye, my, my, my right eye in that case. And so the, the stability I get from leaning against the ladder makes it work. Now, it's, it's, it's not as comfortable, and I can't stand there leaning on the ladder as long as I can, as long as I can sit. But, you know, it's, it's second nature now, and because I, I've been doing it since the 12 and a half inch F7.8. And, uh, you know, it's like anything. You, you know, if, you, if you can make it comfortable enough, you get used to it. And that's, that's what's true for me. I really enjoyed your, I, I attended your, your sketching presentation back in December at the uh, Kitchener-Waterloo Center. I think they put that online. There's a video available. People should look that up. You've got a few uh, YouTube talks where you're going through your sketching process. And one of them, you talked about bias. This one really caught my attention. As somebody who works in the research field, I was really interested in what you had to say about bias and in relation to observing in particular. For example, last night I was looking at the ghost of Jupiter, which is a little planetary nebula. When I was looking at it, I thought I could detect the dark central area with a little bit of a brighter ring, with a brighter ring, and then with almost like this big knot around it. But Previously in the day, I was looking at sketches that people had done through 10-inch telescopes, and I was having trouble determining if I was actually seeing that larger knot or if I was simply being influenced by the images that I looked at of other people's sketches earlier in the day. So how do you compensate for bias at the eyepiece when you're sketching or drawing? Uh, this is one of my favorite subjects, actually. I have, I have a presentation about just bias. So... The first thing about bias is recognizing that we all have it. I mean, we, we can't escape it. You know, if, if you have a computer, if you look at magazines, you've seen these beautiful images of all these great objects in the night sky. We know what they look like. That automatically creates bias on what we expect or hope to see. And there's... There's no way to fully escape it. I, that's my conclusion. The best that I can come up with is that by recognizing that the bias is there, um, what I do is that I double check myself. Like for instance, if I'm not entirely sure I'm seeing you know, a really faint galaxy or a really faint detail in a, in a galaxy or a nebula, I move my telescope off to the side a little bit and I try to see the same thing. And if I can see the same thing where I know it isn't, then I know I'm fooling myself when I'm looking at the object. So, so that, that's just one way to, to test 
my perception and my bias. And it's, it works. I mean, any number of times. <laughs> I'm, I'm really close to convincing myself I'm seeing that. And then I move the telescope off to the side. And, oh, yeah, I can see it here, too. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so it's that does have a lot of good utility to it. And the other thing to, that, that I've come to recognize after doing a little bit of research, I'm hardly an expert on this, but our brain and our eyes are wired in a, in a way such that, you know, how humans have evolved over the millennia. And we're wired to see patterns where there aren't necessarily real patterns, you know, paradelia, that, that's a thing. Um, and, and recognizing that our, our brain is very likely fooling us at times is also a good check. So when, you know, when, I, when, I, when I'm seeing something outrageous that, or something that, not outrageous, something that I don't expect to see because it would be so faint, I mean, I really go to some length to, to double check myself. And it's not because I'm doing any anything scientifically or, or anything like that. I'm I, I'm observing because you know, I'm just a guy with a telescope and I want to see what's out there. But I also want to see what's really there. I I I want to try to filter out, you know, the noise that that my brain throws up in the way. Yeah, I love that. That's a that's a great tip to move the telescope just adjacent to where you were looking. Yeah, and, it works. And see if you can still it see it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's startling, and you go, "Oh, it's still there." It's like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> when we were chatting just before we hit the record button, I was telling you about all my failures last night observing, and when I'm trying to go for some new and challenging objects, Howard, what I try to do is really just try to make a blank first impression to see if I can get it just right off the hop, look for the fields, try to get the fields nailed down. And then maybe on a subsequent night, I get to a darker site or I have a better plan or the night just works out a little bit better. Then maybe I can make the observation. How do you plan for your really difficult observations and doing uh, some of these fantastic sketches? Well, there's a number of ways. I don't have one one method to, to plan a night of observing. Um, yeah, I have um, you know a number of articles scheduled for for future dates with Sky and Telescope, and so if I if I don't have you know, enough sketches to pull together something that I, I think is good enough to be to be printed. I prioritize observing that object as much as I can. Um, and, you know, frankly, and that, that has really spurred me on to make observations that I normally wouldn't go to the trouble to do. And so it's been a real motivating factor. Like, for instance, well, I need to see, you know, the Veil Nebula in the dark sky, but it's April. Okay. Well, I, it's up, but it comes up in the very early morning. And so, I, and, you know, in my sky here at home, um, that puts it right over the Portland light dome. So, okay, I drive out to Central Oregon, someplace super dark by myself, which I wouldn't normally do, and I get the best views of the Bale Nebula I have ever had. Okay, so and, and so that wouldn't have happened otherwise. But but mostly, I have my uh, trusty Sky Atlas two thousand, 
And I have gone through and I have circled all the objects I want to see. And when I see them, I give them a little check mark. And so like I have all of the um, the ARP galaxies, I have all the, yeah, all the ARP galaxies and, and a bunch of planet, really faint planetary, able planetaries. And so that is a long list of really challenging objects to track down, which I still have a long way to go on. Because I, I, I used to, back in the, in the 90s, I was all about the Astronomical League observing lists, the Messier list, the Herschel 400, the, the, the Herschel 2, you know, all these objects. And what I caught myself doing is that I want to see 20 objects tonight to get through this list. Check, 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 check. And what I was doing is that I was seeing the objects, but I wasn't observing them. Mm-hmm. I didn't even sketch them for the most part. So I said, okay, well, this is a terrible way to observe. And so I need to slow down. And I'm going, anything I'm going to observe, I'm going to spend some time on to see what I can see. You know, sketch it. That's the best way to see as much as you can see. You know, the, the act of sketching automatically focuses this is your attention on the object because you're paying attention. And so just doing that, that is like the best observing aid you can possibly have right there. So I just slowed it down. And so just having everything marked on my Sky Alice 2000 um, has been a way I don't necessarily have to plan in advance because I've already done that. Um, If there's something new I want to see, I'll plot it either on the Sky Alice or on my interstellar on Alice, which is great. I use them both. And so now I usually just have one or two main things I want to see each night. But my one personal rule is that to, is to observe one new object, at least one new object every night. Yeah. That's, that, that's, that's my, uh, my informal rule for observing we're getting towards the end here, Howard. I just want to ask you one final question from my side of things before I turn it back over to Shane. And that is, what is one object that you have left to observe that you really want to observe? What's what's one thing you really want to get the 30-inch uh, pointed at and, and get a sketch down of that you haven't seen yet? Oh, a bunch of this, but the top of the list would be NGC 1365. That, that beautiful... Barred spiral galaxy in Fornax. It's in the Fornax uh, galaxy cluster. This is that this is the prototypical barred spiral. Yeah. Um, and I've seen it, but it's just right on the horizon here. I want to see that when it's up near the zenith and to really be able to get a good look at that. That's that would be the top of my list right there. Plus, you know, there's you know a million southern. Hemisphere object. <laughs> yeah, I like to see the tarantula nebula. That would be awesome. But yeah, 1365 would be the first thing I would point the telescope at if it's high, high up in the sky. Well, thanks so much for being on today, Howard. Uh, Shane, do you have any other further comments or questions before we end? 
Uh, this is great, Howard. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for uh, talking to us today. Whenever we talk to big aperture observers, it's it's just fascinating for me because my largest telescope right now is four inches. And I love hearing about uh, you know what you're able to see in the detail. And then on top of that, like I mentioned earlier, is just the amateur telescope making is fascinating to hear what's possible and the creativity that goes on. So just thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. Oh, my pleasure. It was great talking to you guys. And and seeing your faces too. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> I got to get that in writing. Thank you. So much. <laughs> we really appreciate you being on. Um, for listeners out there, you can follow Howard's adventures with big telescopes in Sky and Telescope Magazine. His recent article appears in the May 2023 edition on Edge On Galaxies. And for our concluding remarks, dear listeners, please do us a favor and share the show with other stargazers you know on your social media email a friend or make a forum post. We'd appreciate it as the more people who listen to the show, the more we can grow. And thanks for listening. You can always reach us at actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>